Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome to Friday, KUOW listeners. This is Bill Radke here. So happy to be welcoming you to our Friday sit-down or stand-up. It's really up to you, but we consider what happened this week and what it all means. And I couldn't do it by myself, and I can't talk to you. So we have a panel, as always, of excellent, top-notch local journalists. And you can not only hear them, but you can see them if you're watching the show on YouTube or Facebook. It, that's easy. You just search KUOW Public Radio, and you'll see New York Times technology correspondent Karen Wise. Hey, Karen. South Seattle Emerald publisher, Seattle Times columnist, and author of Readying to Rise, Marcus Green. We also have Seattle Met Deputy Editor Allison Williams. Allison, can you hear me? I can hear you. Um, so I see uh, Karen and Allison in domestic bliss. Marcus, you look like you're in the you're in the metaverse, or you're in you're in a swirl of, of virus particles. I don't know what what's going on uh, with. Ah, you. sorry. I, I can I can switch out my background. If I love need. it. I had to jump on my mom's uh, laptop as mine uh, conked out there. So it's fantastic. It, it's a it's a groovy effect, um, and, uh, and 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 I hope you'll keep it. So uh, anybody hoping for a little snow this weekend? I, I guess there's a slight chance after all we've been through. Allison, your face was, was a delight. I clearly, I've been waiting for snow since, I don't know, about like May. So mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been watching the mountains and we had a lot of rain. It washed away a lot of the snow that was up there. But playing in the snow is like one of the best things to do in the winter here. So I am, I am ready to go the second the first snowflakes hit the ground. I'm good. Reluctance from the rest of you. I'm with you on the on the snow. I know we've been through a lot. We've been through the the wind and the rain and the floods and all that. But uh, uh, yeah, I think it beats flooding, which would happen a little bit this week, particularly up near Canada in Whatcom County. Not as bad as a couple of weeks ago. It also got unseasonably warm this week. I started the week walking in my t-shirt. Uh, Karen is nodding. She, she, you agree that I was walking in my t-shirt? <laughs> the weather has just been wacky. So wet, but kind of warm. I guess it's those, whatever, pineapple expresses or whatever they're called. Warm, but wet. Warm-ish. Warm for Seattle. My family in LA is like, that's freezing. I'm like, 50? Are you kidding? It's amazing. <laughs> I think we've given up on pineapple express because they, not for, for any sensitivity reason, but uh, my understanding is they don't all really originate from that. From, from the Hawaii, greater Hawaii area or wherever uh, pineapples come from. So now we're calling them atmospheric rivers. And um, I, I could probably think of uh, an objection to that if you gave me long enough. But that's, what we're, that's where we're at right now. Should we talk about, um, should we talk, we, we, I mentioned virus particles a moment ago. Should we start in with the news? Yeah, sorry. Uh, from snowflakes to the, the less welcome little, uh, little particles. Um, we're, we're talking now about uh, the coronavirus Omicron, which as of now, as of Friday at noon, has not been identified yet in Washington state. It's a matter of time, right? I think, I think at this point of the pandemic, nobody's expecting isolation of anything. And if anyone is, then I worry about their memory, (laughs) short-term memory. Right. Uh, we know it's in California and other states. We uh, South Africa has seen its COVID cases go from 200 a day a couple of weeks ago to 11,000 yesterday. 
uh, mostly uh, Omicron infections. We don't really know how dangerous it is. As of right now, I know of, correct me if I'm wrong, guests, zero hospitalizations or deaths of anyone diagnosed with Omicron. Have you heard differently? I was looking at least in the cases in the U.S., the, the handful so far, none have been. They've all, many have been people who were vaccinated, but they were described as mild from what I saw. So I was bummed at least one person had a recent booster. So I'd hope that might be more protective, but still mild. So hopefully. And what we're hearing thus far from almost universally is that we don't know yet. Uh, what we know is anecdotal and it's really hard to not jump to some conclusions. I know I heard the first case was found in the U S case was found in California and it was a vaccinated person. And that has carried so much weight, but it is still an anecdote and we do need to wait a little bit to learn anything definitive about Omicron. Yeah. Anything to add Marcus? No, just that uh, we need to continue to to obviously do our due diligence here. And um, you know, everybody needs to hopefully uh, those who haven't, please get vaccinated, get your booster, and uh, hopefully uh, wear your mask if you are ever in uh, places with uh, a mass amount of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for those of us who are doing those things, it doesn't, I, I got to say, just personally, differently as a journalist, and of course, I, we're, it's nervous making, and more people are infected in some places. It's, it's bad, but um, to some people, your approach to life doesn't necessarily change. I went to a live theater show last night in West Seattle at Arts West, and they were requiring vaccination proof. And, um, uh, you know, I looked around me, I was ready to get out of my seat if I felt unsafe. And I just thought, well, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. I'm not recommending it for others, but I I made that choice. And so there was a theater was pretty full for us. It's a very small, intimate place. Well, I think we're just so used to thinking about the pandemic in terms of our community and then nationally how we're doing. We talk about parts of our country that are more vaccinated than not. I think it's really Omicron is reminding us we need to think more on a global scale. Think about what the vaccination rates are like in Africa, where they're, you know, below 20 percent in a lot of countries and the availability. Like we, we know this by now. It's been a year and a half longer we're all in this together. We don't get to opt out of the pandemic, even if we were to manage to vaccinate our entire country, which is looking less and less likely. So I think just like the concept of what the pandemic means, we know if it's in South Africa, it's going to be here eventually. We all need to coordinate more on a global scale and think about what we're doing to increase vaccinations there. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say, I've seen people even, you know, adjusting on the very micro levels, uh, you know, people have started using, um, uh, screen, you know, using their uh, vaccine cards as, as screensavers on their smartphones. It's uh, mm. easily accessible to, to give to the waiter now. Saves a step. Yeah. Uh, and here in Washington State, uh, Dr. Alex Greninger, who's with the UW Medicine Clinical Virology Lab, he said that Washington is one of the most well-equipped states when it comes to identifying and tracking variants. We have sort of the best eyes out there when it comes to looking for these variants and reporting on them. So I think, you know, as soon as Omicron is here, we'll, we'll be one of the first to pick it up. And uh, f- officials are urging people not to panic. As you said, Marcus, that the, the, the advice hasn't changed. And um, I don't know, I, I heard Governor Inslee talk a little bit. I think he said, uh, you know, the usual wear a mask and be safe and get vaccinated. He said that the number of people using the state's vaccine locator website increased this week by more than 70 percent. So so uh, there is evidence and nationwide evidence too. something like two million people got their shots yesterday, highest single day total in in almost seven months. So there's evidence that maybe 
we don't know if it's connected to Omicron, but maybe it's a reason why people are getting vaxxed and boosted uh, who might otherwise have, have lingered on it. And I think one thing I remember is that even if the vaccine proves to be less effective against Omicron, the more vaccinations mean uh, fewer people in hospitals, hospitals and healthcare arenas are more able to take care of people when it's necessary. You know, there's so many reasons, even if the efficacy does go down a little bit uh, for the Omicron variant. And so especially with the holidays coming up, if you didn't see everybody for Thanksgiving, if you're seeing them for Christmas, like now is the time to grab that booster. Yeah. And anybody changing any holiday plans? No, I think we'll definitely do the antigen test before it, like a little quick swab. I don't know if you guys saw they're going to try to make them um, insurance cover the test, but it's still like the back end reimbursement because we do everything backwards in this country. It feels like sometimes but look at other countries where they're just like sending it to people and things like that. Um, but, and they're expensive here relative to other countries too. It's like, yeah, Karen, isn't it, <laughs> yeah, Karen, isn't it something like for a family of four or five, it, it'd be like, it, it costs like 80 bucks or something for a test. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're like 25 a lot for two, but in theory, you're supposed to do two each. If you actually do that one though, no, I don't know. Anyways. I don't know. Yeah. I think president Biden it's, announced um, a few measures like that. Uh, as you said, would you say backdoor reimbursement or a- after you uh, Afterward reimbursement and, and and a federal fund to pay for at home coronavirus tests for uninsured people. Um, Biden extended the mask requirement on buses and trains and airplanes into the spring, but that's not really a change. It's just you know it's not gonna it's not gonna stop anytime soon. That's sort of the phrase of the that's the sentence of the week. It just feels like it's not gonna stop anytime soon. Um, what else? I. I saw that the federal government is going to send 80,000 more vaccine doses uh, this month to Washington state. Uh, mostly it's wait and see. Like, do you, does anyone think this is going to change? I guess it's, it's, it's so early in the game, but presuming it, it comes here, let's say it's, uh, it seems to be very relatively contagious, much more than, than the Delta variant. I realize I'm speaking early, but we don't know that it's more dangerous. But there are all these things on the table like, um, will this have any make any change when it comes to mask enforcement or vaccine proof enforcement or vaccines required in public schools? Like we is, is, is it just safe to say we have no idea yet what this is going to do to the rest of our lives beyond the usual advice? Sort of what it seems like right now. I mean, there's just it's pretty early and there's just so much TBD in terms of transmission, um, you know, how just dangerous it is in terms of like how severely ill you get and how that impacts, um, you know, how that impacts if you have a vaccine already. I got my booster yesterday and the, the um, pharmacist administering has said that they've been slammed, you know, pretty consistently. So it's definitely a moment again, where the demand is outstripping supply. It's unclear to me if that's like the vaccine supply or just like the pharmacist supply, like the number of people who can administer them since we don't really have those huge max sites, mass fax sites up like we did earlier. So I don't know. We'll see. I, I think also we'll be coming, we need to continue to talk about the effects of even mild cases down the road, things like long COVID that is still really not understood. And I know there's places, especially at UW, that they're, they're looking at it. They're trying to understand it. But uh, I heard a report somewhere, um, I think last week, that one-tenth of all lung transplants right now are going to COVID, uh, people whose lungs were damaged through a COVID uh, experience. 
you know, that's just one kind of healthcare outcome that we don't know much about yet. And I think, well, obviously preventing death is the the very first priority. Uh, we also need to consider what we're going to be seeing if things like these milder variants, if there are milder variants that come, what might the outlook be? It's great when there's a mild case, but I think probably all of us have known somebody who had a mild case that was still really hurt pretty badly by it. Yeah, and I'll say I think we also need to continue to focus on inequities, you know, where it is with in terms of our industry and, and racially and and in terms of ethnicity as well. Um, I, I think the report came out that uh, it was the healthcare and social assistance industry um, where Black people are 35 percent of the cases in that sector, even though the population of that sector was only 21 percent. And I think with Asian people, it was, they were 22% of the cases, you know, they were only 14% of that particular population. So I know that public health officials say that they are uh, continuing to, to monitor those inequities. Uh, but I hope that uh, there are, you know, that we do continue to not just monitor, but hopefully um, bring those inequities down somewhat. You're listening to Week in Review. That's Marcus Green from South Seattle Emerald and Seattle Times and author of Readying to Rise. We've got New York Times tech correspondent Karen Wise with us in Seattle Met Deputy Editor Allison Williams. And we are reviewing the week gone by for you uh, visually, by the way, too. If you want to go to uh, Facebook or YouTube and search KOW Public Radio, we are going to come back after a short break. We're going to talk about uh, gun violence prevention or the lack of it and much more. Uh, Amazon holiday turnover and more and the internet ending this week. Uh, I heard that thing. Stay tuned for more Week in Review. We're going to be right back. This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW Seattle. I'm Bill Radke. Uh, I'm told that I'm only broadcasting with my laptop microphone, so if I sound a little funky, that's why. I travel all the way to our studio uh, so that we can uh, work around a tech issue, but but heck, we've been doing that for a year and a half, right? So has the rest of the world. I can see Allison Williams and Karen Wise and Marcus Green, and we're figuring out what happened this week and uh, breaking it down for you. Telling it, uh, telling you what it all means, Marcus. The um, South Seattle Emerald, uh, where you write, has a story this week about King County and the city of Seattle trying to prevent more gun violence. What's what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, there was a, a meeting uh, between uh, residents of the Mount Baker uh, lofts in the Mount Baker neighborhood and uh, some city officials, including some uh, King County Council members and, and City Council members. There had uh, been a shooting. Uh, their last week, a fatal shooting um, near the Mount Baker light rail last week, that is, and that in many ways was just a continuation of uh, so many other uh, 
so much other violence, I should say, that had been going on in that area for uh, the past year and a half. And so many uh, residents there are saying that this very much ties into the belief that when there's violence that happens in uh, South Seattle, it's met with an asymmetrical concern or consideration than if it's uh, than if that violence takes place elsewhere, like in uh, Magnolia or north of the Ship Canal. Uh, one of the things that they've continued to say is that, look, there's been drug dealing going on. There have been homicides that have been going on. There have been robberies going on. There have been shootings that have been going on here since the pandemic. And yet, and still, uh, it, it appears that there's just been no cavalry coming or no uh, sustained concern or uh, sort of a, a stain, sustained addressment uh, of this issue uh, with uh, city officials. And so now, uh, thankfully, that they, they've gotten some level of uh, news media and, and attention on it. And that seems to have coincided with uh, sound transit, as well as uh, some other uh, other elected officials uh, wanting to get t- together and actually address uh, and remedy some of these concerns at this moment. Marcus, what are the remedies that these residents want that they're not getting? Well, part of it is that you've had all these community hubs surrounding the area, including uh, coffee shops, uh, convenience stores, and other small businesses have been shuttered since uh, the COVID pandemic hit. And that is, they believe, created conditions for a lot of these things to fester. They want economic uh, revitalization and and investment in this area. Um, SDOT does own uh, some uh, facilities and, and buildings near the area that they're hoping can be developed soon and provide some level of uh, revitalization and commerce. At the same time, you know, there are some people who are asking for more more patrols by SDOT uh, around in the area. Um, and they're also asking, you know, potentially for, you know, some uh, level of uh, community organizations uh, potentially getting some uh, ad- additional funding. Uh, what's interesting about this is that I-, I think, you know, this has ramifications, not just in, in this area, but uh, for the rest of the city. You know, this is a we continue to have a sustained conversation around the, the active role of policing and law enforcement in public safety. Um, and it is truly a nuanced conversation. And, and this is a nuanced conversation that is happening in this area is, you know, what is the appropriate level uh, of policing in terms of where it should dominate public space? Should that be, should that, should they maybe be the last layer as opposed to, to the first layer in that? And you see that now, and this is actually playing out in, in this uh, situation where you've had uh, uh, mayor elect Bruce Harrell, uh, respond and say that, you know, I think that we do need some level of increased SPD staffing in the situation. And you've had uh, Tammy Morales, who represents uh, the area on city council, say that we need to focus more on upstream issues. Um, this is a debate that's going to continue to happen. And I think especially in, in an area like this, this could potentially act as a case study of, okay, what does maybe a pathway going forward look like as the optimal level of sort of community involvement law enforcement, as well as investment in the surrounding area look like? I have many questions I could ask Marcus. We also have uh, 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 fellow journalists on the line here. Any any questions or observations from Karen or Allison? No, I mean, I know everything about this from South Seattle Emerald, but which is obviously such an amazing resource. I thought it was interesting how there'll be twice monthly meetings going forward. And that seems like, I'm curious, Marcus, if you think that um, will create greater accountability or you think it'll fizzle? Like, how do you think that plays out over time? Or are there like precedent for that, having that ongoing commitment like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the residents certainly know that the squeaky wheel is what gets greased. Um, they are certainly optimistic that, you know, there's some continued and, and sustained conversations and dialogue can bring attention to this. That being said, you know, I spoke to a few who are saying that, um, you know, they're a little wary that it, these meetings are only taking place because of the attention that is now that this is now garnering. But six months from now, let's let's actually see if, you know, these conversations have been sustained. And I think I just, you know, again, I, I too have learned about this through your reporting. And I think that one thing you've really hit there is that a single solution is unlikely to fix a, a single approach and that you're talking about long-term investments um, far upstream rather than just addressing the the immediate concern for, for the long-term. And, you know, I think about things like, you know, gun control and, and gun access issues, those are important to address, but that's also not going to help things next week. And yeah, just definitely reminding me of that, that importance of multi-prong approach. Right. And, and how do you, and as they were, as many of the residents were saying, it's like, we need to, we have these immediate problems right now, but then we also have these downstream problems that we also need to take care of. And so can we essentially, can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Um, it's yet to be seen if that can happen, but uh, they are definitely hopeful. And, and I do just want to note that the, um, that this article was written by Ben Adlin. So I, I do want to just give him uh, the credit for it. So, Yeah. At South Seattle Emerald, um, Marcus Green, this debate about that you mentioned about policing, armed policing versus treatment and de-escalation, different responses. There was a settlement this week between the city of Seattle and the family of a woman killed by Seattle police officers. Would you say the killing of Charlena Lyles is a, a case, an example of how people want policing to change? Yes, um, I'll say this, and and I want to preface this by saying that I I am a person who lives with uh, mental illness. Um, Charlene Lyles uh, also suffered uh, with a mental illness, and that was known, you know, previous to the the shooting that that took her life. Um, As a matter of fact, five days prior to that fatal shooting, um, she had called the police, um, and there's an incidents there where they had uh, reported that she was, you know, suffering um, essentially a, a mental health break. And I think this is a situation where, again, somebody of color who was uh, dealing with them, you lost their life, uh, you know, at, when it came to an, an incident with uh, law enforcement. And I know that there are several advocates who continue to say that, and including police officers themselves. And I think that's kind of been lost in the conversation is that there are many police officers themselves who will say that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be the first line of response when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to trying to uh, address a, a mental health crisis or somebody who is going through a mental health crisis, because we're not necessarily maybe the best situated, uh, you know, people to do so. Like may- maybe we can have uh mental health counselors who are activated in these situations and should they see that things have escalated to a point where there does need to be, you know, some armed law enforcement, then potentially maybe they can come in. I know that there are, I've written about this before um, and I've had a personal situation where, um, you know, I I was going through a, a mental health breakdown town a few years back and my mother was with me and, you know, she was, she said it would, for her, it was a fashion bargain. Do you call the, the police and potentially have something um, take place in, in terms of 
me possibly losing my life or do you, you know, let things sort of, you know, play out and also, you know, potentially they could escalate to a point where something else, you know, bad happens. So do you call the police or do you not knowing that uh, either way could lead to a dangerous situation? Um, I, I will say that I think with all the talk of, you know, police defunding and, and, and whether that's good, bad, and different or what have you, I think this is one area, if you separate that, um, you know, into just a conversation around should it, law enforcement be, again, the first responders to these situations, I think that there are, there is more of a, of a pathway and more of a, an awakening and agreement between people left, right, and center about, you know, potentially there could be some support for, um, you know, making sure that uh, first responders are folks who do have some level of mental health counseling as, as opposed to, um, you know, as opposed to just police officers. Hey, Marcus, I, I, I want to say I'm, uh, I'm so sorry that you and your mother had to face that, that Faustian choice, as you said, um, that, you, that you go through that. And thank you for telling us about it. And, you know, your own mental illness moments and, and for writing about it so well as you have. So, um, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to hear. And uh, thank you for discussing it with us. Um, I wonder in the case of Charlena Lyles, if um, that was now four, almost five years ago. So uh, maybe we should, when we talk about a, a failed response, will you just describe what happened? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the, the, uh, Reader's Digest version, if, if you will, of it is that uh, she, uh, Charlene Lyles, called the, the police to report a burglary. Um, they, uh, two police officers, ended up uh, arriving at her their house, at her house or her apartment, I should say. Um, one of the police officers did not have a taser, um, even though he was required to have one. Um, she uh, ended up uh, brandishing a knife and saying that she. Uh, was going to turn, transform into a, a wolf. Um, the police officers stated that they were in, in fear of their life and they ended up shooting her. I believe it was seven times. Uh, her, uh, in front of her four children, uh, one of uh, the children actually uh, crawled on her um, afterwards. Um, so it's just a very harrowing experience. Um, and her family, for as you laid out, for the last four years have been seeking some level of accountability and answers. Um, and they were able to receive this uh, settlement, um, you know, earlier this week, which even though for them, right, it's some level of satisfaction, it obviously does not replace uh, the loved one that they lost. Mm. And I saw that Lyle's son said that, that uh, the family wants to see these officers criminally prosecuted. Is that going to happen? Where does this case stand? Uh, it doesn't appear that that's going to happen. There is a inquest uh, that is going to be the, uh, that's going to um, commence uh, next year that uh, King County is doing. However, um, in some ways, it it, it feels ceremonial um, in the sense that it isn't a lack of information uh, about you know that uh, about this case. It's a lack of accountability, as uh, you know, as the family is saying. Um, as a matter of fact, the two officers who were involved in this shooting actually don't have to uh, even appear um, at this hearing. So um, at this point, uh, it appears that um, they won't face any uh, other consequences other than what they've now faced, which and I, I think which initially one of the officers were suspended for for two days or, or, or something. But other than that, there hasn't been much in the way of accountability the family feels. Hmm. Thank you, Marcus. Any other observations or questions from uh my guess. 
I think the one thing that popped out to me in reading some of the reporting, you know, reminding myself about this case after a couple of years is the note that the, the officer who didn't have a taser, his battery was dead. And so he had left it back uh, in his locker, whatever. And I thought just the lack of um, prioritization of the non-lethal response there. It's hard to imagine a similar situation where like something was wrong with your gun to the uh, police officer went out without it that day. And that's just that sort of particular note of noticing how unimportant the, that non-lethal response was and that it just was a shrug and left it behind. I was struck how the um, police officers were aware of her history. And, and I think um, they went into the situation kind of knowing, and it still ended up this way, which to me is getting back to what you were saying, Marcus, of like, this wasn't walking in with ignorance in terms of what they could be walking into. It was like either training or just overall approach, like how kind of set up for failure in many ways. So it gets to this broader reexamination you're talking about of like, there needs to be a whole new way of dealing with this because this current system is clearly insufficient. We were discussing this week's settlement, three and a half billion dollar settlement between the family of Charlena Lyles and the city of Seattle and two Seattle police officers. We are discussing the news of this week as we do on Fridays, Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke, and we've got Karen Wise here from the Seattle Times and we've got Allison Williams from Seattle Met and Marcus Green from South Seattle Emerald and the Seattle Times. And we are going to take a short break and come right back and get back at some of the other big stories this week. We'll fill you in. You can watch as well as listen when you go to YouTube or Facebook and search KUOW Public Radio. I'm Bill Radke. We're going to be right back. It's Week in Review on KUOW Seattle. I'm Bill Radke, swinging with the technical issues as we do. We're talking remotely with Allison Williams and Karen Wise and Marcus Green. Everyone can hear me just fine? Hey, how about that? Um, We are talking about the news of the week here on Week in Review. Um, Allison, you were talking last night with some Seahawks fans, which maybe is something you would do anyway, but you were talking about their newest player, a future Hall of Famer, and what are people saying about Adrian Peterson? Well, I get, you know, it popped up on my sort of internet Twitter feed and uh, some people were reacting negatively to the news of this player. And I thought, gosh, where have I heard that name? I had to Google. I am not much of a football fan and realized I had heard his name. And this is sad with the NFL. I knew it was something, uh, some legal issues and uh, crimes probably committed. And uh, this was a gentleman who was, uh, went through a child abuse uh, accusations, uh, ended up uh, sort of resolving it around 2014 with some game suspensions. And then um, he, I believe, came to some sort of settlement with the, uh, that case. But he was known as the guy who'd spanked his child or used a switch on his child. And that sort of made him infamous uh, in the news at the time. So I remember thinking that a player like this coming in on the practice squad for the Seahawks, it's a pretty minor thing. I probably would not normally hear about news of a practice squad player coming in. Um, yeah, it sort of surprised me, although in talking to Seahawks fans, I was like the Seahawks fans specifically are more concerned with his age and place on the practice squad mm. and similar technical things around his playing style. Um, yeah, this is a, but, this is a air 36 yeah. year old future Hall of Famer, but yeah, signed to the practice squad. So it's, um, you know, yeah. he gets to keep playing and I don't know what kind of contribution he'll get, but that's the age reference you're making. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, age in football, which is, you know, a little depressing sometimes to realize how, how young that is. Football to be years. Football, yes. Yeah, sports years. Um, yeah, but, you know, as far as I sort of was one of those things that came up as like, oh, yeah, it's that guy. And it's sort of as we look at our recent conversations about cancel culture and the kind of things that follow people around for their career, it's interesting to see how this he was sort of an infamous player for a little while. Um, but though the Seahawks has have as a team in time sort of expressed that they would not accept the kind of players uh, that have gone through some of the the issues that we see elsewhere in the league, I don't think that they're necessarily any different from the rest of the NFL as far as the players that they will consider. Um, they were looking at Antonio Brown, I believe, last year. Russell Wilson was pushing for the team to take that player. And he's someone who had um, been in the middle of rape accusations and sexual assault ac- accusations and even more. Yeah, I saw the Seattle Times reporter Lewis Cam tweeted a quote from the Seahawks general manager from nine years ago, quote, we would never, ever take a player that struck a female or had a domestic dispute like that or did anything like that, whatever anything like that means. Uh, but but Marcus, you pointed out this isn't this isn't uh, this isn't new for the Seahawks. No, we've actually been here before. And I got to say, it's somewhat maybe hypocritical from the fan base, because in, in 2014, the Seattle uh, Seahawks drafted. Uh, Frank Clark, uh, he was a defensive end out at the University of Minnesota. And it, and previously, uh, he had a uh, suspicion um, and I believe was actually charged with a domestic violence uh, uh, situation uh, with his uh, then girlfriend at the time. And yet, even though uh, the GM, SEAC GM John Snyder said that they did their due diligence, it, it came out later on that they didn't actually talk uh, to the victim or, or survivor uh, of that particular case. And uh, what he'd been on the Seahawks roster, I want to say, for the last, uh, you know, four years prior to going uh, recently to, to Kansas City. So, you know, I mean, I think this is a situation, as Allison pointed out to that. I, I don't know if this is Seahawks culture as much as this is the NFL's culture, right? You have people, uh, a, a teammate now of Frank Clark's Tyreek Hill, um, who's as fast, beloved as the most, uh, the fastest man in, in the NFL, and yet, in 2014, he was uh, arrested for striking his pregnant girlfriend in the stomach face and um, trying to strangle her. Um, and then uh, just in 2019, he uh, had an issue where he's investigated for breaking his three-year-old's arm, yet he was rewarded with the contract and got to play in the Super Bowl last year. So uh, again, I mean, I think this is an issue where the Seahawks, like most other teams in the NFL, believe that their fan base will tolerate um, certain things. And unfortunately, it seems like they're, uh, some of that tolerance includes domestic violence. You know, is it fair to say that Seahawks fans aren't any different from fans anywhere else in the country when it comes to expecting more from their team? I don't know that we've seen anywhere across the, the country where football, you know, a, a particular football program is changing their expectations dramatically compared to the rest. I just think it's interesting to compare it to maybe the other teams in Seattle that have sort of support and the cultural support we have for the Seahawks here, you know, right now they're not doing terribly well in winning. And, but I don't know that that changes expectations of what we, we see or think, I don't know if we would accept this from a different team. It's obviously other professional sports have their same issues. It's not isolated to the NFL. It's just much more, I think, obvious and um, certainly discussed. Well, Allison, I'm wondering how much, and 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 Karen, please feel free both of you to weigh in. I'm I'm wondering how much of this tolerance goes to the violence itself of the sport. Like I've, mm. um, I've uh, 
recently become a mixed martial arts fan, uh, you know, because of Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, one of the, followed my career. You know, <laughs> and I know some of their top names have had, uh, like John Jones has had some, you know, domestic issues recently, domestic violence issues recently. And it seems like those things just going to get glossed over, you know, very similarly to football. I mean, how much of it is just the nature uh, and violence of the game in, in, in some ways people sort of are almost expecting, you know, violence from the players or participants, ver- ver- you know, versus, I don't know, tennis or, or something like mm-hmm. that. I mean, I, I, I guess there's a slight argument to be made that something like hockey also has, you know, short bouts of, you know, violence and aggression that are part of the game, but probably Mike, you know, I'm not a sports expert, but I would say probably not to the extent that football does. Um, I mean, culturally just, a, you know, I think it's been well talked about that the culture of football is definitely one that has specific ties to, to violence and aggression. Yeah. So I, I don't celebrate it on the field in some yeah. ways. Yeah. I don't really follow football. So in part, cause I don't get the violence is just not appealing to me. Yeah. So and same with like the hockey it's just not appealing to me. And I think like I have a kid, do I really want that to be the sport that our family that watches together or participates in together? If I can choose something else. Yeah. But you still learn all the amazing things about, that can sports can be about essentially. I'd be lying if I told you I didn't enjoy uh, Kenny easily doing terrible looking things to people for the Seahawks over the past years. So, uh, yes, that's fair. Uh, we're talking here with, uh, that was Karen Wise, the New York Times tech correspondent. And we've got Seattle Mets' Allison Williams, South Seattle Emerald publisher, and Seattle Times columnist Marcus Green. And um, you've, you're on, Karen, you're on the Amazon beat a lot. And here it is. The you know our state's biggest employer facing the biggest uh, retail rush of the year with a labor shortage and the pandemic. Uh, how they've been handling all that? They crushed it apparently, mm-hmm. <laughs> as Amazon tends to do a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. Broadly, this kind of Black Friday to Cyber Monday stretch that we just finished uh, was pretty flat across the country for retailers. But Amazon said they had record sales. Actually, there was some reporting from Business Insider that their sales were up 10% according to their internal data, apparently, which is pretty striking given that sales were up really high last year. And broadly, the industry didn't see that much because um, because people have been buying earlier, right? I mean, how much have we heard about the supply chain problems and whatnot? And people, mm-hmm. there aren't as many deals because there's not as much product. So people, dis- you know, retailers don't have as much reason to discount stuff when you know that you have demand for what you've got and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and they're, they're kind of, Amazon is achieving this at a lot of cost because they're having trouble with staffing up fully. Like a lot of employers are, and they had this problem beforehand where they had, we found a really, really high churn model for their hourly workforce before the great resignation. And so they have this added hurdle of constantly having to replace their workforce and they're, they're spending $4 billion this quarter just on labor-related expenses to try to meet all the deliveries and the demand that they're that they're seeing. So they're throwing money at the problem right now. You say that this churn in the hourly workforce. I, I've, you also reported, I, and I've read this, that that Jeff Bezos had a philosophy that churn was good. But was he talking about more the 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 engineer, the designers, the corporate you know executives uh, when he talked about needing new ideas, or did does does Amazon have? I can't imagine why they would want churn in their uh, workforce and deliver uh, warehouse and delivery workforce. 
Yeah, actually, this was an idea really pegged to the hourly workforce, to the warehouse workforce that um, that they found people were less productive over time in those in those um, hourly roles. And instead of focusing on how to engage them more uh, or promote them or things like that, their focus historically had been on helping them find new work elsewhere, or paying them to leave, things like that. They stopped giving automatic pay increases after a couple of years. Hmm. Um, and in the corporate world, it's interesting to what degree this spilled over. You know, they have um, what they call unregretted attrition targets. So they're it's, they <laughs> unregretted it's attrition. Not, <laughs> very lovely term. Yeah. Very hated internally, I would say. Okay. Um, they insist it's not stack ranking, ranking but it's a very... Um, I will say most employees call it stack ranking. So mm. that's just a, you know, you can choose your side of that, but it's a very like Jack Welshy 1990s idea that there's a, a kind of pushing the bottom chunk out. Um, it's not necessarily not even close to the rates of turn that you see at, at the warehouses. You know, I've heard of um, unregretted attrition targets of a, like 6% a year in the past. Whereas we found the turnover in the buildings in the warehouses was 150%. A year, which is just twice the industry average, and just an incredible amount of churn. A lot of a lot of humans, people, coming to work at Amazon, and then just kind of falling out of the system, and some on purpose, and some just getting their hopes dashed because they think they're joining this, like you know, employer of the future. Yeah, right. I always have questions. How about Marcus uh, Allison? Any observations or questions? I, I was actually curious what this might mean for the future. I mean, Amazon has taught us all what to expect of online retail. I mean, we accept it. And it sounds to me like they've, they've, they're willing to make some sacrifices, spend some more money to keep our expectation of that fast free shipping. It's not free because you paid for it with your prime membership. Uh, I, I know I've, I've changed my expectations on other retailers. You know, I ordered something from Nordstrom and it ended up taking a week and a half to get to me. And I, I, it's the supply chain. It's, I understand that now, but I'm not sure if I've changed my expectations for Amazon. Do you think that is more important now than ever for them to to continue that expectation and can they maintain it with that kind of staffing turnover? Yeah, yeah. So they, before the pandemic, had been rushing to move from two-day shipping to one-day shipping and literally like the very quarter they announced that, sales like reaccelerated, they like kicked up again. Like we are all really, really susceptible. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember early in the pandemic, it got really slow even from Amazon. And so they've been pushing and pushing to get more items back at two day and then more back to that one day goal. And they talk about that really regularly because that's going to be the advantage that getting us because you learned, I bet from your other retailers, it's okay if a lot of things don't come in in two days or three yeah, days or yeah. sometimes a week, right? I mean, there are some things where it's nice, but when you get used to it, it's really hard to like reset. And the pandemic, the pandemic was a bit of a reset. And so I think they're trying to get back to um, to the faster model where they are really like shine as in terms of being able to deliver on that. Well, and I think my sense is that's that's the what they've got over some other retailers is, you know, sometimes it's cheaper on Amazon. Sometimes it's not really when you're and if you're coming down to sense, you know, the supporting other businesses might take precedence or the ease or whatever it is. And to my sense is that they've really taught us to expect that. And that is what they absolutely have to maintain more than almost anything else. It, there's a Wall Street analyst who said that Amazon should raise, they've raised their wages a, um, a number of times this year because of the labor crunch, essentially. 
And there's a Wall Street analyst that said they should raise them like by a ton more because that will be a competitive advantage because they can afford it in a way that other retailers can't afford it. And they, they, this Wall Street analyst says it would be what's called a competitive moat, but that would basically give them more like a bigger step that other places couldn't couldn't keep up with. Yeah, Karen, it almost sounded like reading your story and, and listening to you, uh, your interview on the daily, it almost sounded like it was a reverse pyramid scheme. So like how, you know, how many people can they continue to just churn through at, at, at this rate, though? Yeah, that's one of the questions that's being debated a lot inside Amazon in Seattle. Now, Amazon's made this pledge to be Earth's best employer, but they've had this incredibly high churn kind of callous model so far but it's generally worked for them or at least, and right now they can kind of solve it with money and its founder kind of embraced this model. So how do you turn? Can you turn? Like there's a lot of people inside Amazon that hope it will both from a business perspective of we're going to need more workers, but also just as like a human, not liking the idea of kind of burning through people in that way. But otherwise, how do you employ every single person on earth at least once? <laughs> right. right. But it was Maybe that was the goal. Maybe we all just heard it. <laughs> It was so interesting to us that when we brought them our findings earlier this year about this turnover, we the response we got back wasn't like, oh, we're really, this is like, we're really working hard to bring that number down, or this number is unacceptable. We know that. It, the, the response was much more like, well, we're happy to provide work to people when they need it. Some people just need it for a season of their life, or um, it was just, attrition was just one number that without the other context doesn't have much meaning, but without really elaborating. So it wasn't really, you know, you got to like, it wasn't the admitting a problem stage of whatever process sort of thing necessarily. Yeah. We'll see. All right. The the attrition is unregretted. Uh, How did they uh, finally, Karen, how did Amazon deal with the internet ending this week? (laughs) They survived the end of the internet. Can you believe it? Allison, you brought these signs. I think it was you that brought these signs to our attention. Uh, no, I know that I had a coworker talking about them. And so I had heard about it through through him. One thing that just totally struck me, there were these signs up around Seattle with uh, yesterday's date, uh, I believe, and saying that the internet was going to end at 2 p.m. or something. Uh, there was a website. It looks like a, stri- looks like a string of code if, if, if yeah. two were, were in, it's one, two, zero, two, two, yeah. zero, two, one. We have one. all our palindrome dates going on right now. Yes, uh, it's <laughs> it reads the same backward or forward, which yeah. happens, you know, that's going to happen in the year 2021. <laughs> So, I, and I believe the website shifted to uh, a sort of looked like a marketing website for a, a book, yeah. if I remember correctly, yeah. at the 2 p.m. The thing that totally struck me about this, other than, yeah, people are asking, oh, what's going to happen at 2 o'clock, uh, was that the joke about there being an end to the internet, like, are, are 17-year-olds getting that joke? Like, the internet is not a, <laughs> a single entity that, like those of us back in the series of tubes uh, era made jokes about actually reaching the end of the internet because it was a finite number of pages. Mm -hmm. It's not even just a series of pages now. And it's such a, such a part of society that I just thought, Oh my gosh, we're going to be the like people in their rocking chairs making jokes about the end of the internet. And like, the concept will be beyond younger generations. Well, the whole, and I remember Y2K. I mean, <laughs> you know, that whole thing. And then like everything, I remember my but mom- There was just not be an internet for a while. My mom convinced me not to take a trip then because she thought I wouldn't be able to take a plane back after Y2K happened. I will say that on me for uh, letting, <laughs> letting myself be persuaded. Never on that. <laughs> Marcus, what would that be like if the internet did suddenly end? If that, whatever you that know, means- 
Yeah, no, I mean, it actually re- reminded me of about three years ago, I was at the Skyway Library working and um, it was right after um, these uh, kids got out of uh, got out of school. Uh, they're like 12 to 14 years old and the Wi-Fi went out and everybody there is just like moaning and begrudging. And they're like, oh, my gosh, what do we do? It's, it's going to be so boring. And the librarian makes an announcement and she's like well you know there's uh, all these multitude of books around maybe you can read we have books <laughs> and there's like this epiphany that oh yeah you go to the library you can actually read a book i was yeah so i i don't know if, if it ended I, I would hope that there would be a, a mass uh, rereading uh, i guess I that's beautiful all right. Uh, it's time to wrap up the show. We're always ending on things making us smile. I said I went to live theater last night, and uh, Emerald City Comic Con is back through Sunday at the State Convention Center after being canceled a couple times. Usually it's in spring, so wear your your very warm costume. And, uh, and before I say goodbye uh, to my guests, I just want to let you know that we want to know what's making you happy. Uh, we've got KOWs bringing our first and only live show of 2021. We're slipping it in at the end. We're going to do our year in review show on December 16th. That's a Thursday night, 7 o'clock at Town Hall, Seattle. The in-person tickets are sold out, so somebody's going to theater. Uh, but what you can do is sign up for our live stream, so that way we'll send you a reminder. We'll send you the Zoom link. Just go to KUOW.org slash events. And when you do that, we'd love to know what has made you smile all year long. We always ask at the end of the show, we say something made us happy. Let, we could include you in our year in review show if when you go to KUOW.org slash events, you click that big orange button and see how to send in something that made you happy. We did this last year and it was, and it was beautiful. Uh, something that made you smile this year. Um, again, KUOW.org slash events. Okay, uh, team, it's time to say goodbye. Thank you for being Week in Review this week. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Love to see you. Marcus Green is author of Readying to Rise, and he publishes at South Seattle Emerald and writes a column at the Seattle Times. And Karen Wise covers technology for the New York Times. And Allison Williams is a deputy editor at Seattle Met. And we just love when you come together and we can we can wave at you on YouTube and Facebook and we can listen to you uh, describe what happened this week and what it means. Will you do it again soon, please? Absolutely. Absolutely. Please. Lovely. Great to see you all. Uh, And thanks for tuning in to Week in Review on KUOW Seattle. Uh, Hope to be seeing you on Year in Review. But uh, for this week, the show, you know, is produced by, we've got uh, Sarah Leibovitz. We've got Alec Cowan. uh, We have got Kevin Kniestead and uh, Bernard Wallet running the board. Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza on social media and live streaming. And thank you for listening, as always. We'll see you again next week. I'm Bill Radke.